and welcome to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership Podcast. My name is Ruth Haley Barton, and I'm founder of the Transforming Center, and I'm here with Steve Weins, Senior Pastor of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Steve is also a Transforming Community alumni, which means we spend a lot of time laughing, growing, and being transformed in the presence of Christ in community with other leaders. Everybody, welcome to episode seven. This one's going to be a great one, Leadership as Intercession. And Ruth, one of the sentences I have highlighted in this chapter is this, the choice to lead something, to orient your life towards some vision or ideal, and to lead in that direction opens you up to a whole world of pain that you might not otherwise have to face. How do you see this happening in Moses's life? And how do you see him responding to it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Moses sacrificed a great deal in order to lead the people out of Israel. You know, he had found an existence far away from the place of his pain. And it was a pretty relaxed existence. He didn't have a lot of responsibility, and he could have just finished out his life that way. So he goes back to Egypt at great cost to himself, at great risk to himself, and the people start complaining against him almost immediately. I mean, he could have avoided the pain altogether by just not ever getting involved in the Exodus, right? So in Moses' life, he opened himself up to, you know, betrayal and being treated probably worse than he ever could have imagined and heartbreak and all sorts of stuff. So that is a part of the cost of leadership is that you open yourself up to things that you cannot control, how it is that other people respond to you, how they treat you, um, the risk of putting oneself out there and being misunderstood, which definitely happened to Moses, a world of pain that you might not have been exposed to if you hadn't chosen to lead in this risky adventure. And so he finds out pretty quickly that the people that he's supposed to lead are quite challenging. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have complaints. Mm -hmm. And they actually at times want to kill him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it, it 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 brings into the uh the arena that that if you're gonna lead anything, mm -hmm. you're gonna have to to face yes. down that mm -hmm. challenge and figure out how you're gonna look at these yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what Moses does that's so powerful in my mind is that he doesn't just look at the people. Mm. Even though a lot is going on with the people and they're grumbling and complaining and sometimes they are threatened to either depose him or kill him <laughs> or whatever, he's never only focused on that reality. He's always got sort of one eye and ear towards them, but the other eye and ear towards God and a continued sense of God's calling and also crying out to God for wisdom rather than trying to fix it all by himself. And it's literally in this aspect of his leadership that we see him clinging to God and his relationship with God deepening and becoming stronger because of the crucible that he's in with these people. So yes, he experiences different kinds of challenges and pains and betrayals than he would have experienced otherwise, but I also believe he's experiencing a different kind of closeness with God, different kind of dependency on God than he would have gotten to experience if he had stayed in the safe zone. Oh my goodness. I think when I face uh, challenging people in terms of my own leadership, my temptation is to triangulate, mm -hmm. is to go find someone that'll listen to me bellyache mm -hmm. for days. Yeah. And Moses seems to always take it back to God. He, he seems does. to, and, and the scriptures record these mm -hmm. prayers, these conversations. And so um, talk to me about what you see in these interactions mm -hmm. from the perspective of, of Moses. How, what attitude does he take as it relates to these people with God? Well, he does see himself as the person who carries them to God's presence. And that is by definition what intercession is. 
um, intercession is um, standing in God's presence on behalf of others. Or like Julia Norwich has that lovely little quote where she says, first I look at God, then I look at you, then I look at God again. That when we are in an intercessory prayer stance, it's not so much about the words, it's about the posture that we know that we are standing in God's presence on someone else's behalf. And so Moses saw that as being a primary aspect of his leadership, which is interesting because these days I rarely hear leaders talk about intercession as a part of their life and leadership. We've gotten so far from that in our culture, again, maybe even part of the secular secularization of the church where we think that the best thing we bring is our you know, pithy sermons or the best thing we bring is our strategic thinking or our vision or you know whatever. But Moses really consistently carried the people into the presence of God, and he waited on God on their behalf. And I think that saved him. I think that kept him from burning out. Um, because it's clear, as you look at the stories of Moses, that the people really did project onto Moses what really belonged to God. And so when they didn't like the journey, when they didn't like the food, when they didn't like the arrangements, they would complain to Moses. And Moses shut down that projective process right away by saying, hey, now, wait a minute. This journey is God's journey. He initiated. He's the one who's guiding it. If you've got a complaint, take it up with him. So Moses did not let him get drawn into a triangle, if you want to put it into family systems theory. Um, but he kept their focus on God where it needed to be. And he refused to take the place of God in their life. One of the things that my wife says often is so many people are trying to figure out their mommy daddy issues mm -hmm. with the pastor. Right. So you talk a lot about mm -hmm. self-differentiation. I think this is a big thing. If we're going to be leaders who intercede mm -hmm. for the people, we also can't get lost in the burdens mm -hmm. of the people or in the people themselves. Right. So can you talk about how you see self-differentiation and why is it important that leaders move that way? Well, differentiation is the ability to know where I end and you begin. And it's the ability to be oneself regardless of the relationship pressures that there are. And to even put an even finer point on it, it's the ability to stay connected while still maintaining a sense of yourself. So some people can't maintain a sense of self unless they completely separate or cut off from whoever it is that's bothering them. But that would not be seen. That's not a healthy pattern. The health is to be able to still stay the person that I am, still maintain my sense of self while staying connected with you, and not letting the anxiety that's stirring up in that relationship, you know, sway me, you know, one way or the other. So Moses was able to do that. He was able to stay connected with the people. He was able to hear their complaints. He was able to stay in relationship with them while at the same time knowing his own boundaries and knowing that he was not God and he wasn't not going to take the place of God in their lives. He was going to keep pushing their focus back to God while still staying in loving relationship with them. That is a challenge. And that takes a kind of emotional health and, and psychological health that I think many leaders don't have. So Ruth, what happens to a leader when they really do differentiate and they remain who they are? Mm -hmm. That is a great question because you would think that everything would be fine if a leader can just function in that sort of a healthy way and stay clear about who they are and not get drawn into other people's projections and all of that, not take it all too personally, that everybody will be better and be fine. And the truth is they will in the long term. But in the short term, there's going to be sabotage. And so 
Ed Freeman, who's a Jewish rabbi who is an expert in family systems theory, or was, um, and also was very well-versed in what happens in congregations, he actually talks about the fact that self-differentiated leadership always triggers sabotage, which is a systemic part of leadership. Now, that is not good news, but hang with me. Um, He says this is so true that a leader can never assume success merely because he or she has brought about change. It is only after having first brought about change and then subsequently endured the resultant sabotage that the leader can feel truly successful. When the sabotage comes, this is the moment when the leader is most likely to experience a failure of nerve and seek a quick fix. So this is exactly what happens with Moses and the people. Moses has now successfully brought about this change. They are now out of bondage. They are now out of Egypt. But immediately the sabotage kicks in. And so it's really very counterintuitive because you'd think the people would just now adore Moses and never want to sabotage, but would now want to follow him wherever he goes. But um, they are still projecting onto him responsibilities that aren't his. And so part of his leadership is to stay really clear. This is mine. This is God's. I'm not going to get drawn in to all your feelings. I can be here and be present, but I'm not going to get drawn in. um, And I'm not going to take a role that's not mine. Um, so it's it, this is quite a challenging moment, and I think that many leaders, and I certainly fall into this category, we think we are going to make it through leadership without getting treated like this. I, I remember thinking, I am so special yes. that I am never going to get mistreated, I'm never going to get re- betrayed, I'm never going to be misunderstood, I'm never going to be hurt like other people have been hurt. I mean, that is grandiosity at its best. But Friedman is saying that it is part and parcel of real leadership to experience sabotage and we better just get ready for it, you know, and get used to it. Do you think people engage in sabotage precisely when you refuse to do the things that they want you to do? Do you think that's part of why they yeah, sabotage? Yeah, I think that anytime a leader really does differentiate um, from the mass, there's always going to be that that impulse that the people say, no, we want you to change back. We want you to be who we thought you should be or who we know you to be. Um, and so there's always going to be this no change back. We want you to we want you the way we were. We want even our situation the way it was. So when the Israelites are really unhappy with the menu choices, you know, in during the journey and the menu the choices. menu choices, and they say <laughs> it would have been better for us if we had gone, you know, if we had stayed by the flesh pots in Egypt. Yeah, you know, that's a, let's go back to the way it was. This journey of self differentiation is too hard because think about it. They are differentiating as well. As a community. They, as a community, they are leaving bondage and doing this new thing. And um, so the Egyptians retaliate. The Egyptians, you know, try to get them to change back and to come back and be our slaves again. So any kind of movement towards self-differentiation will often trigger sabotage, unless the people around you are also differentiated and know how to receive you as you are. And so in a mature community, that that can be the case. But with people who are not aware of these impulsive behaviors and and the, you know, the dynamics of systems, of living systems, um, they'll be doing this and not even know that they're doing it. What kind of leader can can take the heat of sabotage and remain a leader of intercession? Mm Well, I think, first of all, resisting the urge to personalize anything. Um, so when people are grumbling and complaining, Moses didn't personalize it at all. He said, you know, really who you're complaining against is God, not me. I'm not going to take this personally, so take it up with him. So refusing to, to take things too personally and allow it to tank you takes a lot of internal strength. But if you can do it, 
it really helps because then you, you don't get tanked and the people get to work through their projection and to come back into a right relationship with you and with God. The other thing that Moses did, which was so healthy, was to use it as an opportunity for intercession. So rather than finding someone to commiserate with him or finding someone, finding other people who would have um, supported him in sort of washing his hands of these people and left. Um, instead, he moves into an intercessory prayer posture. He actually carries the people into God's presence and he stands in God's presence um, and holds them in God's presence. And and he waits for the wisdom. You know, he waits for God to give him the wisdom for how to proceed. And what I find really inspiring about Moses' story is that it says that there was a place that he actually designated for intercession. It was mm. called the Tent of Meeting, and anyone could go there. But when Moses went there, it was so, something like a national holiday because people realized that he was carrying them into mm. God's presence. And so they assumed that something good would come from that, and they wanted to hear from God through Moses. So it says that they would actually stand in the entrances of their tents and literally like genuflect when he walked by because they knew that he was getting ready to you know, to yeah. enter into this sacred space of interceding for them before the presence of God. So they, even though they projected, they also saw him as a deeply spiritual leader who prayed for them and who carried them into God's presence. So I think many leaders view intercession as the job of the prayer team, mm-hmm. maybe yes. the elders, mm-hmm. right? The people who are gifted yes, at uh-huh. intercession. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say to those yeah. leaders? It's not what I see in the story of Moses. In the story of Moses, I see Moses as the intercessor. And so I do believe in intercessory prayer as being a particular gift and calling on some in a church or in a community. And we have intercessory prayer teams functioning all the time in what we do. But there is not any way in which that relieves me of my burden to pray and to hold the work of the Transforming Center and the people of the Transforming Center and the communities that we shepherd in God's presence and to listen on their behalf. And that is something I take extremely seriously, um, even though we also have intercessory prayer teams, who I will say do a kind of intercession that I wouldn't be capable of doing. So before our retreats, they're praying in every room and they're touching every chair and they're, you know, praying through every session. While I'm doing what I'm doing, they're doing what they're doing. But in the, in the general scheme of things, as it relates to the, the health and well-being of the communities of the Transforming Center, it is my job to continue to be in an intercessory prayer stance, holding it all before the Lord and listening for God's guidance. Because that's one of the things that happened for a Moses as he interceded, was he, he received actual guidance for what to do in these very difficult situations. He received the Ten Commandments. Right. He was standing in that intercessory prayer stance. So I wonder what some of us as leaders are missing because we're not taking intercession seriously as part of our leadership. What does intercession look like in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm you and burden you to the point of you can't even move? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm revealing some of yeah. my own struggles, right. but... Well, and mine too, because um, I was raised in a Christian home and in a pastor's home, and intercession, the way it was presented to me early on, was a very weighty thing. Like, it was big, long prayer lists and praying around the world in 30 days or less, and and it was more than I could bear. It is part of what made quiet time so burdensome for me in my younger years was the fact that I had all these instructions and all these weighty things that I was supposed to do while I was in solitude. But eventually, I learned a different way. And now, intercession is a great joy and delight to me, and it doesn't feel weighty at all. And the way that I enter into it now is that in the silence that I'm taking with myself and God, um, 
after I've been in silence for myself for a while, then oftentimes God will bring someone, an individual or people or group or situations to mind. And I trust God to do that. So now I don't, I don't come in with a list. I sit openly and receptively with God and I um, give God great freedom to bring who God wants to bring into that very, very safe space. And as God brings them, then again, I don't even feel like I have to pray with words, but I just hold that person or that situation or our community in God's presence. And um, I trust that that's enough. At the same time, if God does give me wisdom or guidance for how to proceed, like maybe something I am supposed to do for that person, then I'm really committed to do it or to say it or whatever I'm supposed to do. But it comes at God's initiative. It's not me trying to wrangle something from God or work really hard to get insight or wisdom. I just trust God that God loves us all and God's going to bring people that he loves to my mind. If I'm supposed to be the one who is hands-on loving them, he'll let me know how to do that. And it is, it is a wonderfully freeing way to approach intercession. So you know, when someone asks me to pray for them, I say, I will do that. As God brings you to mind, I will pray for you. That way I'm still putting it back on God. And guess what? God usually does. God usually does bring that person to mind. I am shocked and stunned at how faithful God is to bring to mind those people that God loves that God wants me to be praying for. And in that way, you can be really honest yeah. when someone mm-hmm. says, hey, would you pray for me? You say, I will pray for you as God brings Mm -hmm. you to my mind. I'll never forget when you Mm -hmm. told the transforming community that I was in Mm -hmm. that prayer practice Mm -hmm. that you had and the relief that I felt that I can, oh, well, that's actually something I feel like I can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And whenever I've told anyone that, you know, or I picture myself literally bringing them into a room Mm -hmm. in in which Jesus sits and then leaving the room Mm -hmm. as if to say, Jesus knows what they need, right. and I don't have to go through a long mm-hmm. list of things that I think they might need verbally yeah. with Jesus. I can leave them with Jesus, right. and um, and that that matters, and that's that's mm-hmm. enough. Ruth, last question: If we're going to intercede for people like this, uh, we're going to carry some suffering that, and we're going to see some pain that is pretty extraordinary mm-hmm. and can be overwhelming. Yeah. How do we do that well? Well, I think that's where learning how to be with our own suffering and learning how to let God hold us in our own suffering really does prepare us to be with the suffering of others without trying to fix it. So um, to be with my own wounded places gives me a whole lot of clues as to how to be with other people in their own woundedness. When I'm honest and present with my own tenderness and vulnerability without trying to fix it and and learning to trust God with my own tender places, then I'm able to trust God with other people's tender places. When I'm able to face into the great unfixables of my own life and know that not everything is going to be fixed this side of heaven, which is a really hard dynamic to accept. But when I know that and I've accepted that in my own life, I can actually be with someone else in the great unfixables of their life and trust God with it and let it be what it is. So there's this really interesting story. Um, maybe some of you know this, the stories that were written by Kaim Potok, who was a Jewish author. And he has a book called The Chosen, which is such a powerful book because it's a story of a rabbi who has a, a brilliant son, and his name is Danny. And uh, Rabbi Reb Saunders decides to raise his, his son, Danny, who is brilliant, in a particular way in order to shape him to be a rabbi because he's the oldest son, and so he will be the next rabbi unless he makes a different choice. And so he talks about really, in in this case, creating suffering for Danny 
in order to prepare him for his life as a spiritual leader. And I want to read a passage yeah. that describes how important this was for the shaping of this little this little boy. So the rabbi says, when my Daniel was four, I realized that he was brilliant, but that there was no soul in my four-year-old Daniel. There was only his mind. He was a mind in a body without a soul. I cried inside my heart. I went away and I cried out to the master of the universe. What have you done to me? A mind like this I need for a son? No, a heart I need for a son. A soul I need for a son. Compassion I want for my son. Righteousness, mercy, strength to suffer and carry pain. That I want for my son, not a mind without a soul. So he describes this gut-wrenching choice to raise Danny in almost complete silence. And he explains it this way. He says, my father himself never talked to me except when we studied together. He taught me with silence. He taught me to look into myself, to find my own strength, to walk around inside myself in company with my own soul. When people would ask him why he was so silent with his own son, he would say to them, one learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain. He would say, by turning inside oneself, by finding one's own soul. And it is important to know of the pain, he said. It destroys our self-pride, our arrogance, and our indifference toward others. And when I was old enough to understand, he told me that of all people, a rabbi, a spiritual leader, especially, must know of pain. A rabbi must know how to suffer for his people, he said. He must take their pain from them and carry it on his own shoulders. He must carry it always. He must grow old before his years. He must cry. In his heart, he must always cry. Even when he dances and sings, he must cry for the sufferings of his people. Oh, I love that mm -hmm. book. And it's such a hard yeah. book to read yeah. because of that. Yeah. Oh, well, Ruth, um, please lead us through a closing experience. Yeah. Well, we're going to actually enter into an experience of intercession. So if you're driving in your car, um, pull over. <laughs> if you're driving and you want to turn this off and do it when you get home, if you're busy around your home, around your office, stop what you're doing and actually sit down. Don't just listen, but actually sit down and enter into this prayer because we're going to now have an opportunity to in intercede for the people that we love and that we interact with on a daily basis. So the way this is going to go is I'm going to introduce a category of persons through prayer. Uh, for instance, I'll say, loving God, I hold in your healing presence those who suffer pain and ill health. And then there will be a, a moment of silence when you can allow the names of people that you know who are suffering right now to be brought to you by God. You're not trying to find them. You're going to allow them to be brought to you by God. And we'll hold them for a minute in Christ's presence, and then I'll say, may they know the deep peace of Christ. And if you are able to pull away from what you're doing and sit down, um, you might want to open your hands as a way of expressing your willingness to allow God to bring who God will bring. You're not going to clutch and grasp and try to figure this thing out. You're going to just allow God to bring whoever God wants to bring into your heart uh, for prayer today. So as we begin, let's breathe deeply and come into an awareness of the fact that we are in God and orient ourselves to God's presence as we begin. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence those who suffer pain and ill health. May they know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence those who suffer in mind and spirit. 
may they know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence the suffering people in our world and the places where people are experiencing hurt and division, including places of hurt and division in my own life. May we know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence those experiencing grief and loss. May they know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence those who need wisdom for their next steps. May they know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence those people and situations that seem broken beyond repair. May they know the deep peace of Christ. Loving God, I hold in your healing presence and peace those whose needs are not known to me, but who are known by you, and those for whom I have been asked to pray. And I name in my heart all those who are close to me. And go ahead and name them in your heart. May they know the deep peace of Christ. And now glory to God from whom all love flows. Glory to Jesus who showed his love through suffering and glory to the Holy Spirit who brings light to the darkest places. Amen. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening and being a part of our conversation today. As part of the launch of the expanded edition of Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, we're offering some special bonuses when you purchase the book. So if you'd like to take advantage of that, just visit us at transformingcenter.org for details. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love to know. Please leave us a comment wherever you listen to the podcast and subscribe so that you will automatically receive upcoming episodes.